Hello, all my friends, and welcome to another episode of Altitude Crime. I'm your host, Amelia Allen. So this week, we are sprinkling in a non-listener suggestion. I know we've been knocking out a lot of those lately, and we've had a lot of no-body cases, but I wanted to get in an unsolved case. You guys know those are really important for me to cover. So I actually came across a case that I mentioned in another episode that's actually been solved, but then it led me to another very similar case that's unsolved. So we're gonna have a twofer today. And both of these gentlemen actually were really, really integral in the Colorado mountain biking community. So if you are into that hobby, these may sound familiar to you. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. On March 31st, 2009, 56-year-old Mike Rust got home to his house near Mile Post 92 on Highway 285 in Sawatch County to find that it had been burglarized. Mike got home around 7 p.m. and called a friend to say that someone had come into his home and stolen a 22 caliber revolver. This gun was very special to Mike as he had inherited it from his brother who had passed away. Mike had noticed two sets of motorcycle tracks outside and he planned to follow the people that he thought had burglarized his home. He was intent on finding out who did this. Mike left his house on his motorcycle to try to track down the burglars and was never seen again. Mike was a very important member of the mountain biking community and was known as the nickname Mike the Bike. According to Michael Roberts reporting for The Westward, Mike is, quote, credited with helping to popularize the sport both as a competitor and as a behind-the-scenes technician, unquote. Mike was born in Colorado Springs and had five brothers and one sister. He started to have an interest in biking in his teens, and he actually built his very first bike in the seventh grade. In addition to building bikes, he also started to work in bike shops and started to race. In 1970, he became a licensed racer with the United States Cycling Federation. And he gained notoriety in the adventure cycling circles when he and his friends started to do long interstate bike rides. Mike moved to Crested Butte, Colorado in 1980. With him, he took his first mountain bike version. Mike is also credited with helping with the design of early mountain bike trails. He stayed in Crested Butte for two summers. And also in 1980, he was one of the first people to tour Pearl Pass. The first tours of this pass happened in 1976, and it's pretty infamous because it's a very difficult and rocky trail that leads from Crested Butte to Aspen to Castle Creek Road. Mike then opened Colorado Cycling in 1985 with co-owner Don McClung, and this was a bike shop. At this time, Mike also invented the Shorty, a bike with elevated chainstays. The following year in 1986, Mike and the business moved to Salida, Colorado. A few years later in 1989, he placed first in the Colorado State Game Mountain Bike Races. Mike was inducted into the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame in 1991. Now, the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame used to be based in Colorado, but has since moved to be a California-based museum, and it's called the Marin Museum of Bicycling now. 
Around this time, Mike moved to the San Luis Valley in Sawatch County. He lived in an isolated solar home, and the house was actually equipped with a runway to help with both his bike and model airplane work. And he started to call the house the Sawatch Intergalactic Airport. It was pretty clear early on that Mike was missing. And within a few days, a search for Mike found Mike's vest, which had blood on it, as well as the grip of the 22 caliber gun that he was going after the burglars for. His motorcycle was found in the San Isabel National Forest near the Cotton Creek Trailhead in the bottom of a ravine. His motorcycle was found about 20 minutes east of his home, and the motorcycle had his blood on both the clutch and the seat. But investigators noticed that the bike looked like it had been thrown into the ravine, not that it had been in a collision like Mike had gone off of the road and into the ravine. Any other motivation for Mike to have left his house was quickly eliminated. His house looked like he had intended on being home soon, and the premise of his phone call to his friend saying he was looking for the burglars definitely looked to be true. There were still groceries on the counter in their bags, and he didn't take any of his off-road gear or anything else that would indicate that he was going to be gone for a while. A $25,000 reward was put up by the family for information regarding Mike's whereabouts. But after months of no information, the reward was ended in December 2009. And there was no movement in Mike's case for years. The only attention about Mike's case was on the Colorado Bureau of Investigation cold case website. But in 2015, a film that was directed, written, and produced by Nathan Ward would end up reinvigorating Mike's case. The Grit and Thistle Film Company released this film in May 2015, and it's called The Rider and the Wolf and talks about Mike's life and him going missing and overall just a biography of his life. The movie screened at the 2015 Denver Film Festival, and it really helped to raise awareness about Mike and him being missing and what could have happened to him. And actually, as we'll find later in this story, this film company also followed the trial that ensued in Mike's case. Mike's remains were found seven years after he went missing in January 2016, and they were found near the intersection of Highway 17 and 285. He was found just about five minutes from his home in Sawatch County. Mike's remains were found on the ranch property of a Sawatch County resident in a hole. The Colorado Bureau of Investigation was involved in this investigation. The remains that were found were identified as Mike via DNA, but there were also some other finds at the location. A belt buckle that was unique to Mike was also found at the scene. And investigators ended up taking 73 items of evidence from the site where the remains were found. An autopsy found that Mike had been shot in the back of the head. So I know you must be wondering, how did investigators all of a sudden happen to find Mike's remains? Well, in Mike's case, investigators got a tip and the person said they knew where Mike's body was and who had killed him. A 20-year-old man named Michael Gonzalez called police with this tip that his father was involved in Mike's disappearance. Michael's father was Charles Moses Gonzalez. Michael was interviewed by a Colorado Bureau of Investigation agent on October 23, 2015, the fall just prior to finding the actual remains. Michael recalled an incident in which his father, brothers, and himself had dug a hole on their grandfather's property. The hole was supposed to serve as an underground clubhouse for the boys. 
But instead of the clubhouse ever coming to fruition after the hole was dug, the hole was instead filled in with trash and covered with tires. And this always seemed odd to Michael. Investigators got permission to excavate the area and they dug into the ground on January 7th and 8th of 2016. And that's when they found Mike's remains there. Charles Gonzalez was then arrested in the summer of 2016. And Gonzalez was actually already in prison for another crime. And this crime that he'd already been convicted of included burglary and possession of weapons. On a visit from Gonzalez's father and common law wife on December 27th, 2015. Now this would be just uh, within days of them finding Mike's remains in this excavation. The two had told Charles Gonzalez that police were planning to excavate the area and what they were looking for. And at this point, Gonzalez admitted to his family that he was Mike's killer and he claimed it was in self-defense in an accident. And this is also the version of the story that he told to the CBI. Gonzalez said he was behind Mike's property cutting wood and that Mike came towards him on his dirt bike saying that Gonzalez had broken into his house and he just started shooting at him and the two basically just got in this tussle. According to Arlene Cheval's reporting for the Chafee County Times, in this recounting, quote, the 22 caliber revolver that Gonzalez said Rust was carrying mm-hmm. went off, unquote. So basically he was saying that Mike was the one that brought the gun and then they have this tussle and he ends up shooting him with his own gun. Although he doesn't say he shot him, he says that the gun goes off. Investigators did not think that Gonzalez and Mike knew each other going into the investigation, which made this tip really, really important. And moving forward in the case, Gonzalez's son, Michael, and Gonzalez's ex-girlfriend were really cooperative with investigators and helped move the case along. So there's a lot of information in this particular trial, so I'm going to kind of go through and bullet point some of these main things. One of the big things that happened in the testimony against Gonzalez was that one of his fellow inmates testified. This inmate named Philip Romero testified that Gonzalez admitted to killing a man and moving his body to bury it. According to Teresa Ben's reporting for the Alamosa News, Philip had said that Gonzalez told him this story that, quote, He told me he passed the property and he was having problems at one time coming down from the mountains. He got into a staring contest with this guy, said he got out of his truck and shot him, unquote. Then he, quote, broke into his house, stole a gun and shot him with his own gun. He also said something about some marijuana, but he had a hard time putting his body into the back of the truck and he took and buried him, unquote. Gonzalez had told Philip that he had told his lawyers that the other man had the gun, so that Mike had the gun, and that he had shot him in self-defense. So what he told Philip in jail was much different than what he was telling his lawyers. In exchange for this testimony, Philip got a plea deal that would get him early release. He had already served 14 years of a 16-year sentence. And if you're wondering, Philip's charges that he was serving time for were a first-degree criminal trespassing and felony menacing. The defense challenged this testimony as they basically said he could be lying in order to get out of jail immediately, that he basically had something to get out of this deal, so why would he not not be truthful about what Gonzalez had said to him? 
But in addition to this testimony, there was a lot of physical evidence that was reviewed. CBI DNA specialist Stephanie Trahey took the stand and went over a lot of her findings. And according to Teresa Ben's reporting for the Alamosa News, these were some of the most important. Quote, she found no DNA in Rust's skull bone. Rust's tooth profile taken from the burial site matched other DNA profiles taken from his relatives. The DNA on the binoculars in Rust's home described as mixed DNA did not match Charles Gonzalez or any other persons of interest in the case when run through CODIS. Blood and DNA on the vest found outside Rust's home shortly after his disappearance did contain his blood and DNA when compared to other samples of DNA referenced earlier. Several items tested did not yield any meaningful blood or DNA results. Trahey admitted to the defense there is always the possibility of DNA transfer from one item to the other in handling various pieces of evidence, unquote. So that's just some basic kind of baseline DNA that we know that the remains are Mike Rust. Just some basic things there, but I always find it interesting to kind of lay out everything that they've gone through when it comes to this kind of evidence. Now, there was quite a bit of evidence in the case that both the defense and the prosecution did agree on. Uh, so like I said, in Trahey's testimony, the defense kind of obviously pushed this thing of that there could be DNA transfer and kind of putting in that questionable, kind of reasonable doubt kind of angle. But there was evidence that both the defense and the prosecution agreed on, and these were read off by Judge Jane Tidball. According to Teresa Benz reporting for the Alamosa News, these were, quote, DNA taken from Russ's toothbrush, razor, and the bloodstains on the back of Russ's gray fleece vests, according to testing by a private laboratory based on DNA submitted by Russ's mother and brother Carl, were found to be 99.9% positive in identifying the remains found on the Gonzalez property as Michael Rust's. On expert examination, no latent fingerprints were found on the revolver recovered or the motorcycle helmet or motorcycle. The mixture of blood found on Rust's fleece vest sent to a private laboratory by the Sawatch Sheriff's Office for DNA and blood confirmation was found to contain mixed DNA primarily belonging to Rust. A profile on the second contributor was not able to be developed. There was no blood DNA on the gun. Stained vegetation in the area where the motorcycle ridden by Rust was discovered matched other samples confirmed as Rust's DNA. No latent fingerprints were discovered or developed by fingerprint experts on the binoculars in Rust's home or the lens cap or items found at the burial site including the maglite, various aluminum cans, Cheetos and potato chip bags, a miniature Snickers bar wrapper, and liquor bottles, unquote. Okay, so let's unpack a little bit there. So we see that there was a lot of DNA that was gone over, and the biggest piece is confirming that Mike's body is Mike's body. But then you do see where there are some points where there's mixed DNA in places, but they don't have a good enough DNA sample to confirm whose DNA it is. So from the prosecution side, you know, it's then projected that this DNA does belong to Gonzalez. While on the defense side, they can also create the reasonable doubt that that DNA could be someone else's. So you can see how both the tip from 
Gonzalez's son is very important. The cooperation of Gonzalez's son and ex-girlfriend is very important. And the testimony from the former inmate all really helps build what otherwise is not a very strong physical evidence case. But it turns out the case was strong enough. On December 7th, 2017, the jury came back with a conviction for Charles Gonzalez. 47-year-old Gonzalez was found guilty on all counts against him. These included first-degree murder with intent after deliberation, felony murder, first-degree burglary, theft, tampering with evidence, abuse of a corpse, and possession of weapons by a previous offender. Gonzalez was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. There was word that Gonzalez did plan to appeal the conviction, but I've not seen anything more on this, so I don't know if he didn't have grounds for an appeal or if it just never came to fruition. So since we're covering two cases in this episode, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up with a couple thoughts about this case. Musing number one. So I do want to do a shout out on this movie, The Rider and the Wolf, that was made about Mike Rust. I do have a link to it on AltitudeCrime.com. It's only about an hour long, so if you have a chance to check it out, I highly recommend it. Musing number two. Now, I don't know if you remember me mentioning Mike's name, but he actually came up when I covered the disappearance of Crystal Reisinger in episode seven. Mike's case kind of started to become intertwined with hers. Crystal went missing in June 2016, about seven years after Mike, and just after his remains were found and the suspect was announced and his case kind of gained ground again. And part of why this is is because Sawatch County is really like... A sleepy part of the state of Colorado. There's, you know, underlying things there. Crestone's a little funky um, in a lot of ways, <laughs> kind of any way you can take that word. Um, but it's, you know, not a metropolitan. There's not, you know, bustling, bustling crime there. So it was, it's also a very community placed base. So these cases were very hard on the community. And that was a big way that they echoed each other. But I can hope since we now have some resolution in Mike's case that maybe someday we will also get some resolution in Crystal's case. So Mike Russ's case led me to the case of another well-known mountain biker, and this case is actually unsolved. So let's take ourselves to eight years after Mike Russ disappeared and four hours northeast. Tim Virgil Watkins was born on November 17, 1956 in Fort Collins, Colorado. His dad was Virgil and his mom was Jody, and he had a sister named Bonnie and a brother named Gary. Virgil was an avid outdoorsman, and Tim and the rest of the family learned to have this passion for the outdoors, and the family enjoyed camping and hiking and just generally being outside. Tim grew up in the Lewis Palmer School District and graduated high school in 1975. He then went on to the University of Northern Colorado and studied education. In 1987, he had an injury in which he basically broke his ankles and his feet, and he ended up picking up biking as a form of physical therapy. Tim then moved to Palmer Lake, which is just north of Colorado Springs near Monument, and Palmer Lake sits at the foothills of the Pike National Forest. Now being the avid biker that he was, Tim owned Balanced Rock Bike and Ski in Monument for a while, even though that shop ended up closing down. 
Tim had had a prior marriage and had two children from that marriage. He then met his next wife, Ginger Chase Watkins, and they were married on September 18th, 2015. Once Tim was in the Palmer Lake area, he was really instrumental in getting trails built throughout the Palmer Lake and Monument area. According to Lindsay Gru's reporting for KKTV 11, Tim's friend Jeff Tessier said, quote, I think of Tim as a legend in the mountain bike community. He had a passion for riding and loved it so dearly, unquote. Tim also took the time to teach a lot of people to ride. And according to his obituary on Dignity Memorial, it says, quote, if you ever had the pleasure of doing a ride with Tim, he was always encouraging, inclusive, and just plain fun, unquote. Leading up to our case, Ginger and Tim had been having some financial issues and that was putting a strain on their marriage. But by the fall of 2017, they were right back on track and really enjoying their relationship and things were really evening out. So that brings us to September 14th, 2017, which is actually Ginger's birthday. Ginger works in the medical field, so she worked a really long shift and she comes home and Tim's not home, but his car was. So she sent him a teasing text about obviously he's off on his bike somewhere. And that was the case. 61-year-old Tim went out for a ride the morning of September 14th. And he was last seen at around 10 a.m. near his home. But when Tim still isn't home the next morning, September 15th, Ginger starts to get worried. She was headed into work again and just could not get in contact with Tim. So she decided to call the Old Town Bike Shop in Colorado Springs, which is where he was working at the time. And they tell her that Tim hasn't come into work. According to Colette Bordelon's reporting for KOAA, Ginger said at this time that, quote, And that's when panic struck me because Tim would never, ever, ever miss a day of work, unquote. She left work and a search for Tim began with friends and family. Initially, they thought that he could have gone out for a bike ride and gotten hurt and just was not having a way to get to help. Tim was reported missing the following day on September 16, 2017, and this missing person report was taken in by the Palmer Lake Police Department. And a search started immediately with volunteers and the El Paso County Search and Rescue Team. They started in an area where his cell phone last had activity and worked from there. This search turned up a shoe of Tim's, as well as items from his wallet and his bike. The bike was propped up against a tree in Limbaugh Canyon. And Limbaugh Canyon Trail was one that both Tim and Ginger rode often. And the shoe that they found was one of his biking shoes. Now, it's strange enough to go around with one shoe on, but it was definitely alarming because Tim always wore shoes. That old injury I talked about that he got in 1987 where he basically shattered his ankles and his feet made it very hard for Tim to be barefoot at all. Ginger even recalled that as soon as he got out of bed, he immediately put shoes on. The following day on September 17th, 2017, Tim Watkins' body would be found on Mount Hermon near Limbaugh Canyon. A dog actually located his body about 20 feet from the trail and very close to where his bike was left. Tim's makeshift grave was very shallow and it was kind of dug into the side of the hill. And then his body was covered with branches and pine needles. It was found that Tim was shot several times. 
His body was found the day before he and Ginger's second anniversary. And with the loss of Tim Watkins, the biking community was rocked yet again. Tim was really well known in the Pikes Peak region mountain biking community, and he frequented trails in Palmer Lake and Monument. So just like Mike Russ, this was a big hit to that community. Tim was not a man who had enemies, so it was assumed the killing was random and by someone he did not know. There was a few theories that were put forward. Some people do shoot guns illegally in this area, and he could have confronted someone saying they can't do that, and they then killed him. It could have been a robbery, considering that we know items from his wallet were found in a place other than on him. Or it could have been that he was riding his bike and kind of came up too fast on someone and scared them, and they acted in what they thought was self-defense. And while investigators did have some persons of interest, no one ever became a suspect. One of these persons of interest was Daniel Nations. He allegedly was threatening hikers and bikers near Mount Hermon Road and was armed with a hatchet. And he was arrested shortly after Tim's murder for these offenses, but he did not end up being charged in Tim's case. Nations, if you're wondering, served his sentence and is now a free man. Even though the investigation into Tim's killer was having trouble, that did not mean that people were having trouble creating memorials to him. A few things happened after Tim's death. The first was his family asked for donations to his favorite causes instead of flowers for the celebration of life. And these donations went to Young Life, Friends of Monument Preserve, and the International Mountain Bike Association. Bike racks were installed around the town of Palmer Lake in his honor. And the Tim Watkins Memorial Trail was created. The Friends of Monument Preserve took on the project by creating and flagging the path. Medicine Wheel provided tools, and then volunteers came in to help lay and dig out the trail. The Tim Watkins Memorial Trail is an extension to a trail referred to as Renegade. I have included a link at altitudecrime.com if you'd like to see a map of this specific trail. It's near Monument Rock, just west of Raspberry Mountain. A scholarship in Tim's name was also created. The scholarship had many components to prepare awardees with knowledge to enter the bike industry, including hands-on training, formal lectures, mechanical knowledge, and connections in the bike community. The scholarship was a collaboration between a few groups. Trails End Taproom and Tim's family provide the funding. Kids on Bikes selects the recipients, and the Barnett Bicycle Institute provides their training. Through all of this, hashtag be like Tim was born, encouraging folks throughout the biking community. But at this point, Tim's case still has had no movement. In the four years after his death, both of his parents have died and his son Isaac had a son. According to Colette Bordelon's reporting for KOAA, quote, for a long time, Ginger felt guilty riding her bicycle without Tim by her side. Now she rides in his honor and does not want what happened to Tim to stop anyone from doing what they love. Get out and ride, said Ginger, unquote. A year into the investigation, authorities even admitted that it's unlikely that Tim's murder case will ever be solved. The El Paso County Sheriff has reached out to the community multiple times over the years for assistance but it's never led to any other information or developments in Tim's case. And no suspects have ever been named. And this September will already be five years from his murder. 
If you have any information on Tim's case, no matter how small, please call the tip line at 719-520-6666. Okay, let's wrap up with a couple more thoughts on this case. Musing number one. I want to have another shout out to the Colorado Cold Case podcast created by the Gazette. I do have a link to that on the website at altitudecrime.com. Just like the movie for Mike, this podcast does give you a little bit more of a glimpse into Tim's life and the people around him, so I highly recommend it. Musing number two. I always become worried when in a search somebody finds like, a shoe or a jacket or something that someone would need, like, you would have no good reason to just, like, take your shoe off and keep walking if, like, something bad hadn't happened to you. So I always, my heart sinks whenever I hear something like that. And it just is kind of impending doom to me. Musing number three. You know I'm gonna say it. We don't know if they do, but I am hoping that investigators have some kind of of latent prints or small bits of DNA that maybe someday down the road will come into effect. But I think the reality of this case is it's one of those that unless someone just feels true guilt or really just has no reason to protect someone anymore and says something that we may not know what has happened. There are very large expansive places with lots of trails in Colorado and You know, quite frankly, this area is maybe a bit more populated than most, but please, please, please always be aware when you're out and about. You never know who you're going to run into. I know people are typically more worried about the wildlife. I tend to go prepared for the humans, but please be aware when you're out there and we can only hope that someday there's some resolution in this case and it makes it just that much more important to talk about. Okay, guys, that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed this one. It is sad to see people in such a close-knit community having such similar stories, but I thought these were very important stories to tell. We will have some big things coming in a couple weeks. We are two weeks out from hitting the one year of Altitude Crime, and I promise I have some super cool things coming. So please stay tuned and follow or subscribe wherever you listen to Altitude Crime. It helps other people find the podcast and it keeps our listenership growing. And that's what we want in year two, right? (laughs) As always, you can connect with me on social media at Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. And all the source materials for today's episode are on altitudecrime.com, as well as the suggested case link, the shop link, and links to other Amelia Allen products. Well, everyone, thank you so much for spending part of your week with me. You know I love that you come back and listen every week, or if you're a new listener, welcome. You have lots to binge on if you haven't already. Will you all take care, and I will talk to you next week on Altitude Crime. Episode 50, The Murders of Mike Rust and Tim Watkins, was written, recorded, and edited by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.com.